Who was more bonkers, Caligula or Nero? Wow. Oh, Caligula, by, Caligula by a mile. There we go. That was the, also the answer. Rory. We could have just asked yeah. Rory rather than go through all the, the text. I went, I went to my dad to find out and he said Caligula. Nero did some sensible things, apparently, apart from killing all the Christians. Nero was, a, was brutish and cruel, but Caligula was like, genuinely mental. He, he did witness the death Roman of his father, history. Germanicus, and then basically lived under house arrest under the reign of Tiberius. So it was a very tough time for Caligula, and he basically tipped him over the edge. He was a golden boy, though, Caligula. He, he was. was a golden boy. But do you know why he's called Caligula? Hugh, Hugh didn't know. No, no. it's the little sandals. Little boots, yes. Little, little boots, boots yeah. Because his time on campaign with his father. It's fascinating stuff, this, isn't where, it? Where, what, uh, have you been, is it, have you I, I've got a genuine intro. I've been listening to a lot of In Our Time with Melvin Bragg. Right. And uh, I now, I've just sent off for a book about the, the, the Roman emperors from Augustus. Oh, I'm just Chinch. fascinated. Happy anniversary, Chinch. I know, I would never have realised. Never did you, have realised. Do you and the Everton teammates uh, send each other cards every year? Well, they keep trying to have the, well, they do. They have these get-togethers, but I'm, I'm not really a big fan of... Uh, other people. Like school reunion, other people. <laughs> school reunions, and, and I don't know why. And they're all lovely people, but I just... I just couldn't spend a lot of time with them. What, when you were a player? I'd, yeah, uh, I spent more time, clearly, with them as a player than, yeah, than in retirement. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. I just think to have a load of fat, sad, middle-aged men talking about glory days is a bit... I don't know. I don't know. It's just never really appealed to me, looking back. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a forward thinker. I really You're am. not get invited to, like, reunion dues? Oh, yeah. Big time. Big time. You go. No. <laughs> Turn them down. I, I, I try to politely turn them down and because and, uh, clearly they want me there because why wouldn't they? Uh, it would sell more tickets. Um, so, no, I just, I, I don't know. I just, school reunions, I say school reunions. I only won one. Well, you've got to have a charity shield reunion, are we, with Vinnie Samways? Everton, Mike. What's the point in that? Well, I just, yeah. But they've tried to and I'm sure they will do with this. Do you, are you not a big one know. for nostalgia? No, not at no. all. No. I just, Who, that's why I struggle with all the, the soccer stories because I don't remember. It's a miracle I've got this far because I'm really <laughs> struggling to remember last week. We well, felt the same um, about your career. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's just tough. It's just, I, and I just don't, I just don't see the point in looking back. Who do you miss the most from that 1995 team as a person? Um, I didn't really know anybody on that level. I wasn't who did really, you want to, who we did would, you want to be friends with the most? No, we were all friends and we got on. In the but I was glad to go home and get away from. I just I don't have a lot of friends generally. I, I don't have a lot of people that I'm. I speak. I don't have anybody that I speak to. I've never been like at school as when I was playing, and that doesn't mean I was cold. I'm not cold and, and isolated, am I? You know me well enough. I, I am an, a very open, warm person, but I yeah, just you're not don't. A polar bear. I don't like putting on other people and them feeling obliged to maybe spend time with me when I, I just. I, I do. I just uh, so not brilliant at the, at the time in the changing room playing great, but. Not really a lot socially, to be honest. No, Is it since you've, you've got three friends here. Yeah. No, 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 hang on a second. Hang on. I'm, I'm concerned that in 25 years' time, when there's an, an anniversary get-together of the, the original set-piece menu cast, because no doubt it'll go through numerous changes over the years, that it'll just be the three of us. No, I'll die. I'll die. And you're wondering whether or not Chinch is going to turn so, up. I'm just going to be here in 25 years. 
and Matt LeBlanc will be take, he'll take my place and he can tell hilarious <laughs> stories about his friends' days and it'll be, it'll be a, a far more informative podcast. But I'm not going to be here. Maybe just I don't brain, want to say brain in a jar. Maybe I've had enough by 75 and I think that's, that's your lot. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends in lockdown talk football over food. Joining me, Hugh Ferris, are Stephen Wyeth, The Last Jedi, Rory Smith, The Return of the Jedi, and Andy Hinchcliffe, The Phantom Menace. The food is, who's been enjoying lunch today? Could you? I don't, like I don't, I don't get that joke. You don't get that joke. It's all right. There's no. enough people who will do. Uh, tell me about your luncheons today, please, gentlemen. Ham sandwich. I, ham sandwich. Yeah, I'm, I'm running later, so I don't, I don't eat before I run. So I'm from running at law. about four or five o'clock. Yeah, running from the law. Um, but I don't eat. I can't eat. If I'm going to have anything, I'll have a hot dog. But no, I've not had anything. <laughs> if you were to eat anything before a run, it would be a hot dog. No, not before. If I had to eat something because I was that hungry, then I'd just have... I'd warm up a hot dog and, and have that. But no, no lunch. No lunch hot, have you got a lot of pre-cooked hot dogs? Uh, no, but you can buy them and then just whack them in the microwave, don't you? And put a load of mayonnaise and ketchup on them and what? Off you go. What, have you never done, no, it's just, like a, it's just like a hot dog in a bun, but without the bun. This is no great difference. Match day vendors have gone. They're parked outside <laughs> house waiting for him to need a hot dog. This is at the same <laughs> level as last week when Chinch said he wasn't sure what Pitta did. Um, but still, uh, we're learning what you're managing to cook for yourself. And you I don't, don't know how to help. operate a Pitta. I, I, I see it and I think <laughs> how... Pitta is a piece of machinery. To me it is. I don't know how to, I don't know how to engage with it. Chinch, has, has Nicky left you? <laughs> uh, no, it's just at lunchtime. We never have any, really anything at lunchtime. We don't... We have evening meals and we don't eat at lunchtime. We're always, we're always too busy or I'm planning to go and do something. So if you're doing something physical, you can't have a big lunch and then go running around the, uh, the local cricket pitch, can you? Because you, you will vomit. Like on the parks in Withenshaw back in the <laughs> 1980s. Uh, the football is, Chinch, do you know what we're talking about today? Um, is it young but old? Yes, Chinch, we are talking yeah. about something to which you'll be able to contribute from your own personal experiences, not only as a professional footballer, but as a breakthrough wonder kid professional footballer, which I'm sure we all agree you were, because we're going to talk about something that occurred to Rory while speaking to Marcus Rashford recently, which chimes with something that I've been banging on about for a while. It is the youth maturity paradox. We're going to call it that. It's trademarked of being an elite footballer. So young, but rich and famous. We're going to talk about how that throws up some fairly unique circumstances. Before we get to your emails, um, a quick thank you to all that have already emailed to say that you'd like to be involved in our special SPM Live It's Not Live episode. This is a chance for you to join us virtually in an upcoming show. We, as ever I'm sure, uh, completely underestimated your dedication. So we're going to set a deadline for anyone else to get in touch to put their hat in the ring. So send an email to setpiecemenu at gmail.com by midnight BST, midnight BST this Saturday. So that's the end of the Friday. And we'll start contacting the lucky winners at the days that follow. As I mentioned last week, we will have to limit numbers. Uh, that's become more true because of uh, your uh, sensational uptake so far. Uh, we'll also probably have to um, limit your contributions as well. So hopefully that's enough of a disclaimer to manage your expectations uh, sufficiently. In other words, there'll have to be some quiet people at the back who don't say anything. That is the SPM Live It's Not Live episode coming soon. Send your email to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Uh, Many also... of the, um, the podcasts that get like critical acclaim or adverts, have they done anything like this? Um, I don't know because I don't listen to them because I only listen to our own podcast. That's weird. Um, I think it's quite <laughs> it's a good also idea. Not true. I'd be surprised if if we can't have come up with this on our own, can we? Well, I think it's extraordinary. I think it's a it's a this is a brave new dawn for this medium. Uh, talking of which, actually, you can get in touch via, via the uh, same email address for all your correspondence, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter and Facebook as well. But some breaking news from Art Megalian in Minneapolis. And it just has one sentence in his email. FYI, 
Dennis Quaid has a podcast. What? What? Rory, your thoughts on what is called the Denisance? Uh, well, it's a great name to start with. Like the title, like the host. What's it? I'd like to know what it's about. It's basically about him. I think he just talks about stuff that he has done. It's kind of like Dennis Quaid's version of Soccer Stories. Okay. The um, is that is that the um the Den- yeah the Denisance podcast with Dennis Quaid? Yeah, it's relatively new. We only just got into the um. Yes, it started earlier this the, month. Yeah, and it's just got into the game. Good. Um, Rory this is, is the, googling, by the way. Yeah, I'm this furiously is the cross, googling. Yeah, this is the cross promotion opportunity we've been waiting for. <laughs> uh, Dennis uh, and your no doubt many minions and pr- uh, production companies get in touch. Um, a couple of reflections on last week's podcast about the Premier League's rather tortured attempts to plan for the return of football uh, come from a Callahan and an O Callahan. Uh, firstly, Richard Callahan, gentlemen obligatory but heartfelt opening praise for the podcast particularly in these most challenging of times the continued persistence of set piece menu persistence sounds kind of pejorative in spite of this global pandemic is surely an inspiration to us all during your discussion in spm 178 of the partly self-inflicted problems facing the premier league and concluding the season satisfactorily rory briefly alluded to the very different situation faced by clubs lower down the pyramid who are significantly more reliant on match day income for their survival than those in the top flight i am intimately concerned with the continued survival of both my football club sunday in particular and the plurality of English football as a whole. In that context, what actions should the authorities, whether that is the government, the Football Association or Football League, be taking to try to safeguard the future of football in this country? If 20 clubs of the 71 remaining in the EFL were to go out of business, for example, between now and the resumption of play, would it be fair to suspend rules around points deductions or allow newly formed Phoenix clubs to retain their predecessor's place? in the league, despite the fact that it would penalise clubs like Berry and Bolton for essentially running into trouble too early? Or should all of the defunct clubs be replaced by whichever of the non-league clubs have managed to survive by the time we make our way through the turnstiles again? What on earth is going to be left when all of this is over? Keep up the very excellent work from Richard Callahan. I think the big problem with, with League 1 and League 2 in particular is, and it's one that there's been quite a lot of coverage of the plight of those divisions as there should have been. And it's all been very kind of heartfelt and very, very earnest and very um, sympathetic. But there is a reality that, that we're all going to have to face at some point, which is that those are basically businesses that run because they sell tickets to events. They're, sent, they're like the cinema. Like if, a cinema. if you have a cinema and you've got the Cottage Road Cinema in Leeds and nobody goes, even though it's a beautiful old building, the cinema goes bust. That's what happens. I can't remember if it was Cottage Road or the lounge that went bust. Anyway, you get my point. Um, <laughs> The problem for those clubs is that if you can't have fans in the stadium, the, the, the issue about what happens to this season in League One and League Two has kind of been a bit of a red herring. The bigger issue is that if you're not allowed fans in a stadium for the next six months, nine months, a year, whatever, those clubs basically can't, there is no point in those clubs playing, even if they get, un, un, well, unless they get some sort of stipend from the Premier League to do it. That's the only way of doing it, or the FA or whoever it is. The EFL, I don't think they've got the reserves to do it. They are businesses that rely on people going through the turnstiles to watch the football. And if that doesn't happen, those clubs will go. So whether, whether the solution is almost to say, right, lead one and lead two can't come back until fans are allowed in stadiums again, and they have to kind of be placed in mm. permanent stasis until then, their players furloughed, their staff, you know, their staff furloughed, their, their running costs minimalised and maybe borne by owners or by some sort of grant from h- higher up. There is a, the reality is that until you can get people into stadiums, it would cost those clubs huge sums of money to play football. And that would, that's what would imperil their future, not anything else. 
which ties into some of the things we've been talking about in recent weeks by how frustrated we've become by this seeming resistance to thinking outside the box in terms of what the actual parameters of a football season need to be. We might need to be looking at the bigger picture in terms of how things need to change in the short term to ensure as much as possible football still looks something similar to, to how it does now in 10, 15, 20 years' time. The other thing to remember, of course, is that obviously whenever a football club goes out of business and, and Barry is the most recent example of this, it is you know, tragic, it impacts massively the community as well as everybody who has an association with the club. But many, many more clubs are saved from the brink on a quite regular basis. Yeah. For a football club to go out of business, they really do have to spiral probably considerably further off the rails than most businesses in other spheres would need to there's, to find there's themselves a lot of in that. Yeah. So you would like to think that the the broader football community will rally around to ensure that there is a, is a safety net in place for those clubs lower down the pyramid who do run into difficulties. And this is an excerpt from Craig O'Callaghan's email. In short, for one season only, uh, let's create a new league, Premier League 2. The top 14 at present are all on track to exceed the 40-point mark and guarantee safety, so they maintain their place in Premier League 1. The bottom six are joined by the top six from the Championship in a new 12-team league. In both, you play each side from your league twice, home and away. You also play each side from the other league once, either home and away or away, selected at random. Premier League 1 teams have a 38-game season as a result, and Premier League 2 teams have a 36-game season. Smaller teams still have a chance to play the bigger teams, and revenue from TV money, etc. is split across all 26. Um, so nobody loses out financially. At the end of the season, the top four in Premier League One get in the Champions League. Fifth place side enters the Europa League. That's all as usual. To add extra incentive to Premier League Two, the top side in that league could be given the other Europa League place or an end of season playoff against the sixth place side in Premier League One could be held for that spot. I'd also suggest making the League Cup a tournament exclusively for Premier League Two sides and below, given the top teams don't care about it anyway, providing them with another route to Europe. As for relegation, well, if you really want to return to normal afterwards, then you can have the bottom six of Premier League Two all relegated. Finally, how does this affect the championship? Well, either it allows more teams to be promoted from Leagues 1 and 2, potentially giving smaller clubs a financial boost at the time they most need it, or an 18-team division temporarily makes the gruelling second tier slightly less gruelling. This is a plan, says Craig, with few downsides and seems a reasonable alternative. I don't have a club allegiance influencing my feelings one way or the other, but personally hope the season isn't voided, purely because the idea of undoing football that has already happened uh, and that we've all watched seems ridiculous. I look forward to hearing you all, mostly Rory, point out the problems I've not thought of. That's Craig, who is staying alert, he says, in northwest London. Well, other than the fact that it's far too clever and open-minded for it to happen, I don't really see a drawback with that, particularly. I think it's, well, the one thing I would change, I wouldn't necessarily add the, those extra games in, because... I think they're going to have a problem playing the 38-game season next season anyway, whenever it starts. So I've been uh, advocating the Scottish model, whereby two teams just sh shout at each other constantly. And, um, the, and then and, at the and, end, and, uh, there's and a then, big legal disagreement. Yes, exactly. And then hearts, and then hearts are relegated. <laughs> um, no, it's where you play a full round of fixtures. You play 19 games, and then you, play, you split the league top 10, bottom 10, they play each other. So you get a 29-game season rather than a 38-game season, which I think builds the slack in. But I do like the idea of, of two mini-leads effectively because I think that would be a legitimate championship but would also um, give them the slack that they'll need in the calendar. The other idea that came to, was given to me, given to me, I heard from uh, our friends at the Anfield Wrap, which I think should be adopted whatever happens to the season, 
is so as part of cramming everything in, they have suggested playing the FA Cup in, say, in August after the end of the Premier League season, if it finishes. Play the last, the quarters, the semis and the, F, and the FA Cup in, in a week. So you play the quarterfinals on the weekend, you play the, the semi-final Tuesday, Wednesday, and you play the final on the Saturday. That is such a good idea that I think we should do it anyway, every season after the end of the Premier League season. That you, get, you, you play the FA Cup up until the fifth round, and at which point you say, right, that's the FA Cup done for the next two months. And then Premier League finishes May or whatever. Could finish slightly earlier because you'd have those free weekends. And then you get a week of FA Cup action, which I think not only would make the FA Cup more, more interesting, I think it would also restore it to its kind of place of prestige of um, as the kind of traditional, the traditional highlight, the end of the climax of the football season. I think that is the best single idea for football scheduling I have ever heard. And finally, Chris Pesh has got in touch to contribute to what has become a widely held conversation over the last week or so upon the resumption of the Bundesliga. Hi all, it's been over a year since my last email to you, but this afternoon, in an attempt to have some fun after a tough morning at work, I put together a little something I wanted to share with you. As many fans of the Premier League will likely start watching the Bundesliga now, I thought about which of the German teams they might want to support. It would be boring if everybody supported Dortmund, which I suspect many will, but there are many clubs with just as rich a history and equally fervent supporters. So, here is my guide to which team German teams Premier League fans should support. I matched each Premier League team with its German counterpart. I did this just for the fun of it, and it really shouldn't be taken too seriously, but I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, feel free to share it with your listeners. All the best, Chris Pesch. Well, we are indeed going to share it. So, courtesy of Chris Pesch, in alphabetical order, with all four of us contributing, uh, these are the German teams Premier League fans should support. We will start with Stephen. If you support Arsenal, choose Schalke 04. You know what success looks like because you've tasted it in the recent past, and yet it still seems unreachable at the moment. A former club great is trying to rebuild a squad by blending young local lads with battle-hardened stars. One thing's for certain, though, even without success, your recently built stadium is something to be proud of. If you support Aston Villa, choose Werder Bremen. You have fond memories of the 1980s when your club could mix it with the best, but for now, survival is the best you can hope for. A true fan of the club is in control of the dugout, but it's not clear whether he's the right man for the moment. Either way, your standout player, Grealish or Milot Rashica, looks destined for greater things. If you support Bournemouth, choose FC Augsburg. Admit it, you never expected to stick around in the top division for this long. And yet here you are, avoiding relegation year after year, despite some woeful defending and thanks to the efficiency of your powerhouse up front. Also, you've got a bunch of players who can take long-distance shots. If you support Brighton, choose uh, Freiburg. You're the eco-friendly bastion in the South. Nobody really fancies you, but many have a soft spot for you since you're trying to play the game the right way. The media love your manager and your team of underdogs never give up, even if their approach can at times feel naive. You love your team all the more for it. If you support Burnley, choose Paderborn. Your industrial tough and your manager looks like he could take out an entire opposing team just by staring <laughs> them down. You're the little team that could, doing it on a shoestring budget. Others underestimate you at their own peril because on your day, you can beat anyone. I mean, Paderborn are bottom, but okay. If you support Chelsea, choose Bayern München. First you win, then you wonder how you got there. You want to play beautiful football and attract the best players. But if playing beautifully does not bring results, you're not one to insist. Results are more important than anything else. And you generally tend to get results. If you support Crystal Palace, choose Union Berlin. 
You are the less fancied side in the capital city. Your team is full of veteran players who know how to put the manager's plans into action, surprising many with your solidity and efficiency, regularly punching above your own weight. If you support Everton, choose Borussia Mönchengladbach. Is this finally it? Is this the time you might return to your former glory? Once upon a time, you played the best football in the country. Now you're trying to return to the top by building a squad consisting of exciting, hungry players and experienced leaders. If you support Leicester, choose Bayer Leverkusen. You love to attack and your young, talented team is seemingly capable of running without ever tiring. Your young centre-back has been one of the revelations of the season and your coach's tactical acumen allows your players to shine. If you can hold on to your playmakers for a year or two longer, who knows what the future might hold. If you support Liverpool, choose Borussia Dortmund. Klopp, a famous stand, you'll never walk alone, exciting football, excited fans. What more is there to say? If you support Manchester City, choose RB Leipzig. Some people resent your club, but that's fine because you just keep winning. You dominate games at will and the technical gifts and boundless energy of your players are something to behold. Many believe you have the best coach in the league as well. So who cares about the haters? If you support Manchester United, choose Hamburger SV. I know, I know, they're in Bundesliga 2, but think about it. You should probably be contending for trophies, but are currently going through a crisis. For too long, you've been more preoccupied with marketing than the game itself, and now you need to rebuild completely. Can you do it? If so, what an exciting prospect that might be. If you support Newcastle, choose Eintracht Frankfurt. Your supporters among the most devoted in Europe. They've stayed loyal to your club even through the most shambolic times. And now it seems like things might actually be looking up. If you support Norwich City, choose Mainz. People like you, and why not? <laughs> you don't aspire to challenge the big clubs, but the amount of young talent you produce is impressive. There's something homely about you, and everybody knows that your club will not implode, even if you spend a season or two in the second division. If you support Sheffield United, choose FC Köln. They have a rich history and your town really should be represented higher up the league. But over the past 25 years, your game has been mostly disappointing. But this year, upon your return to the top division, you're actually producing some excitement that gets people talking. If you support Southampton, choose Hoffenheim. You are a solid mid-table team and other clubs keep nicking your best players who then uh, turn into world-class players elsewhere. Your coaches are real football thinkers who love to press with intensity. You might lose the odd game through naivety, but when you're on a run, you can take on almost anyone. If you support Tottenham, choose Stuttgart. This isn't a season that you will want to remember, but you know your club is destined for greatness. With a club legend up front and the potential to sign and develop young prospects, you might just get there someday. Plus, you might actually win a trophy this year. If you support Watford, choose Fortuna Dusseldorf. There are so many big clubs around you. You've got a tendency to be forgotten amongst the glamour of these other teams. But you work hard. You have a core support and a knack for doing things slightly differently at times. There's no superstar in your team. It's all about collective success through hard work. If you support West Ham, choose Hertha Berlin. Yes, your club is nuts. No matter what you try, somehow things will take a wrong turn. Your team plays in a stadium that wasn't designed to host football matches and you can spend as much money on your team as you will. It simply won't play any better. And still, you're a capital city club. And should you ever find success, you might go a long way. And finally, if you support Wolves, of course, you have to choose Wolfsburg. You might have to change colours, but the nickname's the same. There's plenty of attacking talent and defensive solidity in your team, which should be able to step up to rival the biggest teams in years to come. Perhaps your town is not a place people think of a lot, but your team is certainly worth talking about.
And that is the guide from Chris Pesh to which team you as a Premier League supporter should be following in the Bundesliga. Thank you to Chris uh, uh, for providing probably the largest chunk of uh, podcast content without us having to do any of it ourselves. Uh, in a word, <laughs> wunderbar. Wunderbar. Thank you, Chinch. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Right then. You can do the conclusion now. Just read out the email address and the Twitter handle <laughs> yeah. and we can go home. Oh, we already you. are home. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> for a long time to come. It is time for a name drop, but in the true underachieving style of your gracious host, it's probably not one that will chime with all of you. I was once having a conversation with Ashley Giles, a former England cricketer who is now basically the guy who runs the current England team. We were chatting about a young cricketer called Hasib Hamid, an opening batsman who had just broken into the England team at the age of 19 and how he was handling it. And it led to us talking about what we're going to discuss today because the conversation moved on to Wayne Rooney, who the three journalists on the podcast have all interviewed many times. Oh, there's a better name drop. Rooney is the perfect example of a theory I've long had regarding a paradox brought about by professional footballers achieving fame and fortune at a particularly young age. What do most of us spend our adult lives doing? Working hard for a reasonable wage that eventually might lead to us being able to afford things like a car, a house, or children. Generally speaking, and to not undermine anyone else's personal choices, by the time that we have saved enough to do any of these things successfully, we are old enough to know what to do with them. We are mature. But if you're an elite footballer, the money comes so quickly that you can afford to buy a car, a house, or children, sorry, have children, immediately when life's experiences have not had a chance to teach you any lessons. Wayne Rooney, he was famous at 16, an England star and then near £30 million footballer at 18, married at 22, a father aged 24, the subject of more than one injudicious transfer slash contract drama before he was 30. That is a lot to deal with. Not all of us are married. Not all of us are parents. None of us have ever been a £30 million footballer. And we have an average age of well, something horrible. And I don't know what you guys think, but when you met Wayne Rooney, you could always see the youth in his eyes. Oh, what eyes. The sparkling azure blue of an Indian Ocean lagoon. So on today's pod, we're going to talk about the youth maturity paradox of being an elite footballer. And we are going to start with Rory's story about the current young Manchester United striker to be dealing with said paradox, Marcus Rashford. Yeah, I, I interviewed Rashford a couple of weeks ago about the remarkable work that he's done uh, with a charity called Fair Share, who are distributing food to about 2 million kids who would otherwise be on free store meals in Britain. And we talked about a lot of stuff, but the, the one thing that kind of really struck me was that Marcus Rashford is 22, and yet already knows that it's really difficult when you've got to try and set up a charitable initiative, because you've got to work out not only the type of charity that uh, that does the work that you want to do, but you've got to kind of do your due diligence on them so that they you can work out how much of the money that you donate or how much of the, the money that you uh, fundraise is going to the right places. You've got to work out the whole model. You've got to kind of do all this research. This, this Marcus Rashford is 22. Uh, but he's also a very sort of calm, quite mature character. And it really struck me that that we have this perception that footballers are man-children, basically, that they are sort of plucked from normal life at the age of eight. And they are never taught how the ones that make it are never taught how to do anything. They kind of go to school, but they don't really pay attention at school. They don't have to they don't really care about school. Uh, they obviously don't, don't go to university. They are often surrounded by people who do things for them, whether that's family who are kind of reliant on their careers being successful for their own, their own uh, well-being, their own financial security. 
or whether it's agents who want them to have nothing to think about other than football or clubs who want them to have nothing to think about other than football. You hear all these stories about players contacting the a club's player liaison officer because their washing machine is broken and they don't know how to get a clean plate because they're not quite sure how their tap works. You, you hear stories about them kind of doing you know ridiculous things about leaving cars or buying new cars because they can't remember where they put their old car keys. Some of them are apocryphal, some of them are true. You, you get this impression that they, they not only have never grown up, but they're kind of trapped in a permanent childhood, not even adolescence, which is where most of us get trapped. Um, but whenever you meet footballers, I'm, well, certainly whenever I meet footballers, I'm always really struck by how old they seem. They always, I mean, not just because they all play golf, which is, as we all know, the preserve of 60-year-olds. Careful, but, careful, but Rory. The, the, oh, what a dreadful sport. The, um, but they, they all seem to have this kind of very, it's not quite mature maybe, but it's, it's this very kind of old before their time approach to life. And I think it must be to do with not only the focus that they're forced to display as teenagers, when most of us are allowed to be as, as unfocused as we like, but because of the pressures they're exposed to, the seniority that they acquire within their professional lives so early on they're exposed to kind of a lot of the stuff that the rest of us only encounter in our careers much later on really and you do get this paradox where sometimes when you speak into a footballer you feel not superior but as though you 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 are kind of a more rounded person than they are which is probably in, in a lot of cases quite true because you have a lot of kind of diverse experiences but at the same time, you always feel as though they're much more grown up than you are. I mean, I'm, I'm 37 and Marcus Rashford is 22. And there are ways in which Marcus Rashford is much more mature than I am. And I find that extraordinary. And I think it's something that players don't, don't, definitely don't get enough credit for. And, and that, that is why it is a paradox, because you are looking at this guy. And this is, this is the, the reason that I kind of uh, rather flippantly mentioned Wayne Rooney's eyes, because you could, you could see in him all the shyness that he had as a person and yet he is thrust into a situation where clearly not only is he able to come out of himself and, and show personality on the pitch and that was always like so many others you find them at their most comfortable even with the expectation and the thousands of eyes on them to, to meet him one-on-one -on -one or as as a person in in a small group to see the, the the kind of the human element of a young person 18 to when did Steve and I stop covering Manchester United who's probably about 20 25 26 at that point and and it got to the stage where you're thinking i am now starting to think of wayne rooney as a boy as a young man much more than i would have done if i had just been watching him on the television or or having the opportunity to 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 sit in the stands at old trafford that there is an extraordinary kind of dawning or an awakening when you when you do meet a footballer like you did rory a couple of weeks ago with marcus rashford you are able to see something that you you never thought that you would see it. So it's a huge surprise, I think, to, di to discover that part of, of a young footballer, particularly. And I appreciate this will be the same for, for very famous young actors, for example, in Hollywood and in other sports to a certain degree as well. Not but, golf. Not, but certainly not golf, because obviously you have to be 60 years old. Um, but, or a 17-year-old who wears slacks, either way. But you, you have an opportunity to meet these people and you see that and you have that... It, it, experience of them one-on-one -on -one. I just and I just think it the first time it, it dawned on me was was Wayne Rooney I think ever since then I've I've tried to appreciate that about young players in particular who are thrust into the to the spotlight it's definitely a conversation that we've had before about Raheem Sterling for example and that that's another example of a player who is who has had to deal with a lot of that at a young age is it not just footballers though is it 
elite athletes across an awful lot of sports, particularly perhaps team sports, in that they almost live two lives, one which has a, a life expectancy of mid to late 30s, and then their, their post-career life. So that first half of their lives, effectively, or that first life, everything is accelerated. The, the expectations that they carry, the burdens of responsibility they carry, but also the, the environment that they are in. We, I think we've drawn in the past comparisons to, to sports people coming out of their careers being not dissimilar to, to people leaving the military. So much of their, their life is structured for them. It enables them to, to grow and mature at an exponential rate as a consequence of perhaps not having the other things, the distractions in their life that they might otherwise have that each one of us, with the exception of Chinch, has gone through previously. And I guess a question for Chinch is that are the things that we're describing or that, that Rory, Hugh and I have described, are those characteristics what help make an elite sports person or are they a consequence of becoming an elite sports person? There has to be an element of responsibility within the person to start with. But I just wonder with the, the huge leap in players' wages and also um, the, the focus on the modern footballer, whether there, there is more that the players themselves see that they have an obligation to, to do good deeds because of the position that they're in, rather than wanting to kind of shy away and spend all their money on, on frivolous things. Are they actually now realising, and they're seeing what Raheem Sterling's doing, what Marcus Rashford is doing, Wayne Rooney, are they starting to then think, I have maybe, with the position I'm in, an obligation to, to act responsibly and do good things for the city that I live in or for certain causes that, that I care about. So it's maybe an offshoot, a good offshoot of, of the ludicrous kind of leap in, in, the, in the wages of, of players and their, their notoriety. But there has to be, surely there has to be. I've seen, I agree with what you're saying about how people would maybe react differently. I've seen players who can't do anything for themselves and players like Pat Nevin, who are, who are, who really in many ways are just so strange within the football world because they're so intelligent and it, it, it doesn't seem right that they're actually involved in football. So I've seen a whole range of different people, not just footballers, but people and how they live their lives and how they think. So I've, I've seen them all, but I just wonder, are we starting to see more and more of, of these type of guys that are stepping forward and I don't think they're doing it necessarily to say that they're doing it. It's because they know that it's the right thing to do and they clearly have the finances and they have the notoriety that will help certain causes along their way. So we should be applauding these lads. But I do feel there must be an element of that responsibility within themselves. Because I was just looking back, obviously I'm not comparing myself in any way to Rooney or Rashford, but I was always a very responsible child and, and, a, a, and a teenager. When I was growing up, I always felt that how I behaved reflected on other people so I was always very careful about how I behave so when I when I came into the game and I was earning kind of decent money I had a young family I had a mortgage so it was second nature for me to again act responsibly and do the right thing but that was always in me to start with anyway I didn't feel that football developed me the money developed me into that type of person there was always that type of person and I just again had the good fortune to be earning money and I could do certain things that mainly for myself and for my family but that that's where it that's where it has to start. And I wasn't earning hundreds of thousands a week. So again, I maybe didn't have the money to, to splash out on other things, but I, I had to take care of what was important to me. But that, again, I feel 
because of the person I was, I lost out in certain ways. I wasn't maybe as spontaneous and I, I couldn't relax and, and do the things that other players could do because my makeup wasn't like that. So again, I do think it's, it's in there from the start and maybe football again, just gives these, these types of people the opportunity to, to do really great things. I think partly it's, it's the money that they feel an awareness that they are very fortunate to have that money and that they would, they, that it's the right thing to do to give it back. And I think that's something that gives some of it back. I think that's something that has always been true of footballers who generally do a lot for charity. You know, they, they don't like to talk about it, but they do a lot, a lot for charity. I think the other thing that's about this generation, the Sterlings, the Rashfords, I think there's a, there's a Generation Z thing about it, which is that, that generation, the sort of the late, I suppose the late millennials or, or the start of Generation Z, which I think is the right, is the right generation. Young people is what I mean. <laughs> I think they are much more socially conscious than, than maybe our generation was. And that applies to players and non-players that if you look at a lot of the, the kind of the, the engagement with certain causes across the board, for 18, 20, 22 year olds now, it'd be much higher than it was when we were kids. I mean, not, that's not to say that, that when we were 18, all the people we knew were selfish arseholes, but I think the, the level of awareness is much greater. And partly that's natural, because obviously it was e- it's easier to be aware of this stuff now because of the internet, you're connected to it and you're connected to lots of people who care about lots of, lots of different things. And I think for people like Rashford and, and Sterling, that has helped that process accelerate almost where they've become more aware early on of of where they might like to contribute than they would have been otherwise has, has Raheem Sterling his acceleration has it been a lot of it down to a reaction to the racist problems that maybe within the game and he became or was kind of put in front front and center as kind of the spokesman on that issue Marcus Rashford hasn't really had an issue to react to he's just doing what he feels is right with the position that he's in is, is Raheem Sterling a bit more is he different because he's more he's reacted more to what's happened within the game I difficult to say isn't it because it's is it that Stern that the, what happened at Chelsea with the with the, the racism and that period where, where Sterling became kind of the voice of young black players is and a leader of young black players is that something that is that a role that he he filled because he was the victim of that abuse or is it a was it a role he, he could have fulfilled and may well have been fulfilling anyway? And it was just the abuse that brought it to the surface. It's, I mean, I, I, I don't, I, we probably can't answer that question. It's a really good one. I think with, with both of them, though, there is that sense that they, to an extent, don't want to just be a footballer. And there are plenty of footballers who do just want to be footballers, and we shouldn't forget that. We shouldn't, there's a reason that people like Sterling and Rashford stand out a little bit, and that's because they're prepared to use their platforms to do other things. The vast majority don't, don't, either don't have the fame don't have the inclination whatever it might be to do that and that's fine like they're allowed to do we shouldn't judge them for that if they just want to be a footballer just be a footballer it's not a problem no it's not it's not doing anyone any damage um but with people with certain certain players i think you i mean even harry harry kane sponsoring leighton orient shirts that's a that's a that's a really lovely gesture it's a really a really lovely thing for him to do um that i think is is unheard of in football previously and that suggests that he he has that sense of kind of responsibility to the in this case the game as a whole. So I just I wonder whether there are more players like that than we give them credit for. But it's not just um, the aspect of having a social conscience or 
um, being aware of charity work or even setting up your own foundation and all, all those elements that we've spoken about, particularly in the first part of this discussion, that, that is just one of a whole group of yes. things that make up now particularly now because of those as Rory you said because the advent the internet and kind of more social awareness in particular but it's just one thing I mean Chinch how old were you when you made your debut um 16 and a half right how old were you when you got married uh 21 how old were you when you had when Sam was Sam and then Dan uh 25 and 27 Right. So, and then you made your England debut at the age of 27 as well? 27, yeah, yeah, yeah. So between the ages of 16 and 27, Mm -hmm. your life, professional and personal, had gone through what most people would imagine to take from the ages of, say, 21 to 40. And you've done it in nine years, 10 10 years. Yes. So the final question before Steve comes in is, how much more accelerated was that because you're a footballer. I know you said that that was within you anyway, and those mm-hmm. are decisions that you would have made, but you were clearly able to afford a wedding. You are able to afford having children because of your um, position as one of the leading left backs in Northwest England. And so given that you had that behind you, was it accelerated in your life? Because this is the point we're trying to make. Everything is being dumped on these people through choice or also through circumstance, way younger, way earlier, and at a level of maturity we would not expect to have to go through ourselves. Um, it's something that I've never even, never even contemplated. I, I don't, is, it, is it really that unusual? Okay, you're playing maybe 16, 17. That's not unusual to, to make your debut. Plenty of players have, have played games at that age. Okay, maybe getting married at 20, you've got to meet the right person. You've got to feel it's the right thing to do. I was married for 25 years, so clearly it was the right thing to do. I was very happy doing that. I didn't feel as though I've got to get married now because my career is going to finish at 32, 33. got to have my kids because, you know, time's running out. We just did what we did. And I, I don't feel, you, you, you talk about it then, and, and it does seem as though you're kind of cramming in a lot of stuff into those kind of 10, 12 years. But I, I never, ever saw it in that way and even when you think I I don't think that is unusual I'm sure a lot of people will go through a similar type of 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 life that I had I think it's not unusual for footballers but it's I suspect it's unusual it's obviously not it's not unusual to have kids relatively young it's not unusual to get married young that that people make different choices based on their circumstances and and on on kind of where life leads them and it's all fine I think the fact that footballers do all of those reach all of those landmarks pretty early makes them not unique but but certainly relatively rare but it's more it's more a subconscious thing of the footballer's mentality is much older than it should have been so at 22 change you'd have had mates who were leaving university um i didn't have any friends because as i mentioned in the uh in the in the ramble before we started i i didn't i didn't have a lot from school i didn't have friends like that i went into from school basically to, to playing the game so i went from school to the to the dressing room this is now becoming a much sadder podcast. <laughs> no, 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 it's just how it is. I don't, don't feel sorry for it. I think, well, there's something clearly wrong. It's just how it was. And it's just the person that, and I, I never felt unhappy. It's just, that's just, just how it happened for me. And whether I got into football or any other line of work, I'm sure that's how it would have been. But if you had had friends, they would have been at the age of leaving university. Yeah, of course. Yes. yes. <laughs> All right. You, you, you also went to school, Chinch, right? So yes. you must, must have known people at school. Yes. They weren't friends, but they were <laughs> classmates, acquaintances. Colleagues. I, I can only <laughs> name. I can only name. I, I can only name about two of them. Who was the doll, Who was the hockey goalkeeper? 
uh, Asif Qureshi, who was the, the cowardly lacrosse goalkeeper, <laughs> mainly because he was, he was quite a big... He was like Benny the Ball off a uh, Top Cat. That's a bit of a showing my age there. But he was round. He was round. And basically, we wedged him in the net. But he was, he was my friend. He was a friend of mine. But after I left school... You'd be binned Never, him. never... Not binned him. No, that's a bit... No. Because he's <laughs> probably, gone, he's probably gone off to a wonderful, fabulous career. And, and yes, I, I don't know where he is. Shout out to Asif Qureshi. <laughs> I'm just wondering whether Chinch is starting to feel uncomfortable with the longevity of this podcast. Is this like the, <laughs> the most in-depth relationship you've ever had with anybody? Um, yeah, but it's at a distance, which is great. <laughs> and that's actually, it was, it, was, it was okay when we met up. But this, this going into isolation and dealing with you all through Zoom is brilliant. It's, it, that's why I've enjoyed, I've really enjoyed the isolation because I'm not really a, a great group. But you must get that feeling when you, you must get that feeling with me that I'm not really built for for big groups of people it's not really what again it's talking about you're talking about Mina we're not meant to be talking about this we're meant to be talking about I don't, I don't footballers think, and their mentality don't think being with four people counts as a big group Chinch. It's, it's, it's hardly hadge is it's, it do you know what I mean it's bigger than two <laughs> maybe Chinch is in the utility out of choice we thought he'd been forced in there but perhaps the smallest room in the house is the one he's most comfortable in I've actually been locked in and I've only just been released from the manacles but uh, happy days the um but no, I think so with footballers, it is that, it's that sense that... So when you were making your first team debut change, when you were in the City team at 17, 18, yeah. you would have been expected to comport yourself in a more professional manner. You might have done above and beyond because of your, your cool-headedness and your intelligence, but, but even, even the idiots in the team of the same age would have been expected to, to behave in a certain way, to prepare themselves in a certain way, to have responsibility in a way that basically doesn't happen to other 18-year-olds. True, it just that, that doesn't is happen. true, yes. Yeah. But they, they would have, like, so look at David White and uh, Steve Redmond and all, all those young these, players that I played with. These are the idiots, City. yeah? <laughs> no, not idiots at all. They were, again, as professional as I was, but they went on lads' holidays to Ibiza, where, again, they wouldn't even ask me. And I, it just, I wouldn't even, even though we're incredible friends, and we'd grown up from kind of 10, 11 years old, Paul, like, all these players, we, we knew each other incredibly well, but I just wasn't, I wasn't like that. So, again, they used to live... A different life but professionally and playing the game they were as professional and as hard-working as I was. In so many ways Chinch is once again proving how he's not the typical footballer but the, the career and life milestones that you went through that you described earlier I suppose help give us a useful guide here because at the age that you were making your first team debut the rest of us could probably barely be trusted to get from the bus station or the train station to, to our sixth form responsibly you were getting married at an age when most of us, the rest of us, were probably first getting our first proper sensible job. And you had your second child 10 years younger than I had my second child. So it, it demonstrates that acceleration that a footballer goes through in terms of the way that their, their life, not just their career, but their life progresses. And bringing that forward to the modern era and some of the, the players that we've been talking about, the Rashfords and the Sterlings, as well as being socially conscious and perhaps having people around them who are giving them good advice in that regards, I guess they also are, are aware with social media that they can control the narrative a little bit better because Raheem Sterling was subjected to some quite appalling treatment by parts of the, the press at times a few years ago. And in a bygone era, that might have been a difficult thing for a footballer to have, not just to have come to terms with, but to have come out the other side of. But obviously, such as his popularity and, and his following on social media, that he's able to control that narrative and, and turn the corner. 
and do bring it. about a different message. And, and perhaps Marcus Rashford is, is doing a similar thing for different reasons. He is aware, almost getting ahead of it, that he, he hasn't had to deal with anything like the negative press that Sterling has had to. But perhaps he feels as though by setting a good example for a way that a footballer behaves, you can change the narrative about how many people perceive a young footballer to go about their life. But you see, funny if I, don't, I know what you mean, but I don't know if that's to do with maturity. I, th- I think that's a generational thing, that I think people who are social media natives, digital natives as they call them, intrinsically, instinctively understand their ability to tell their own story. And in a way, the media is, is having to play catch up with that. Because if you look at the way that all of these... I mean, it's easy for us as non-footballers to sit up from the outside and say, if I was a footballer, there's not a chance that I would be on social media. Not a chance. It's bad enough as a journalist. And a journalist who basically doesn't have that many controversial opinions. But to be a player, it would be an absolute horror show at all times. Because, I mean, what's the point of it? It's just you turn on notifications with loads of people insulting you. Some of it's racist, some of it's not. Some of it's, you know, personal. It, it's there constantly. There's no point saying anything. You get shouted down. You come out if you if you say something that's not about football. You, you come outside your lane. You're shouted down for that. You know, all you're, you're reduced to being Cesar as, as Pelletuetta and saying, "Pleased for the three points. Great win. Great atmosphere today at Stamford Bridge. Uh, see you again next Wednesday." Sort of thing. And th- that can't be a huge amount of fun, even for Cesar as Pelletuetta, who I think made Steve's team, didn't he? In his in his. <laughs> And he's, he was old certainly enough. old enough. No, he was too young. He was too young. He hadn't tipped thirty-seven, so he didn't make it. Not good enough to get into my team, Rory. But then too versatile. The players know <laughs> that that being that it's worth it. I think for the ability to tell their own stories, and I think that's not necessarily to do with maturity. I think that's that's true of eighteen-year-olds, twenty-year-olds, twenty-two-year-olds in other walks of life too. I think there is because they've grown up with that in that world as part of that world they in, they understand it in a way that we don't and they know that that, that it gives them their chance to it is that it is their platform from which they can speak and i think they understand that entirely i think it's more the the personal development where they where the players differ where they do become this weird mixture of because they are i mean footballers are coddled in a lot of ways and there are certain practical things that they do not know how to do or that they would never have had chance to learn how to do so if you've never had to call a plumber because someone else does it for you, then you probably don't know how to call a plumber. You don't, you, I think you'd understand that you might Google plumber, but you wouldn't necessarily know what you're looking for. And I think that, that should be forgiven because all of us through our lives have had a point where we've had to call a plumber for the first time and been a bit, well, ripped off mainly because that's what happens when you first have to call a plumber. You've got no idea what you want the plumber to do. You just know that there's water everywhere and you want it to not be there. But Equally with a washing machine, if you've never had to work a washing machine because someone has done it for you, you obviously will not know how to work a washing machine. But we focus too much on the fact that the players can't do these things because we like buying into this idea of them as kind of spoiled giant babies. And we don't look enough at the fact that they are incredibly level-headed, they're able to cope with pressure, they're, they're used to taking responsibility on their shoulders, they're canny enough that they can tell that they have to not answer a question that you know that you don't go go and do a, a post match interview and and stream your head off and sh- speak your mind and and shout the odds because it doesn't it's not worth it. They have all these things that they have learned how to do as part of their career that would not come naturally to us if we were at the same age as them. And I think that that's partly to do with what they're exposed to, but it's also I think because they spend a lot of their time with older men either as coaches 
when they're coming up through the ranks or when they make the first team and kind of first come into our consciousness they are in a dressing dressing room with 28 29 30 35 year olds and to an extent i think they naturally probably mimic what those people do that they they perform being a footballer as they see it performed by the 29 year old captain and they think well that's what he does so that's what i have to do if i want to be a footballer that's what a footballer does so you get this this sort of standard across the board from 18 to retirement where everyone's kind of the same because they all have they're all taking their cues from from the older members of the dressing room and that that is a kind of self-repeating cycle chinch i I want to ask you if that rings true for you in the dressing room because um, rory you've you've not really that much had an office in which you spend a lot of time because most of your your work has been um outside of that steve and i have had offices in, in in the radio stations that we used to work at so we've had that experience at least to a certain extent of mimicking those more experienced than you who do the job probably a lot better than you and and learning that way <laughs> Steve was saying absolutely not. I was always the best and there, there so there is a sense of that ringing true in terms of the, those people who have office jobs whether it's frivolous office jobs like Stephen and I or uh, slightly more important office jobs out there in the wide world but in terms of you Chinch does that ring true who was the who was the player the 29 year old captain or you know Dave Watson or whatever did you did you find yourself doing that and how did that help you mature a lot faster than we're, we're saying most people do that aren't footballers well I must have mentioned this before that I, I cleaned Mick McCarthy's boots before I actually played in the first team I was an apprentice and as an apprentice back then you were given two or three players David Phillips uh, Mick McCarthy's boots to to clean and make sure they were packed for games so you had that responsibility from kind of 16 onwards and again with Mick McCarthy he was obviously quite tall but he was up there wasn't he he was he was of 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 great stature, but also he, he said things how they were. And if it wasn't right, he made damn sure that you knew. And I never, again, because of the way that I was and I knew I, I was looking after Mick, that you, you had to make sure that everything was right because he would tell you if it wasn't. So again, straight away, I'm learning that this is how you need to conduct yourself. Then you step onto a pitch playing alongside Mick McCarthy and other senior players as well. But there's also examples there where, you know, certain players sewing the Versace labels on their suits on the outside so people can see how expensive their suits are, having a fag in the toilets at half time. I realized that that's not what I wanted to be either. And that was never going to take you anywhere. Name and shame. Name and shame. I'm not going to do it. No, no, it's unfair to do that, Jim told me. Um, (laughs) Was he the Versace or was he having a fag? Up to you to decide. But the thing is, again, yet you learn that there's good and bad examples all the way in any, in any office, any, any job that you do, you can look at certain people. But to me, the real honest professionals who did the very best that they could and realized they had a responsibility to people around them. That just, again, struck a chord with me because that's what I wanted to be. And even at Everton, when I was 26, 27, at the peak of my powers, which was, was pretty impressive, you still had Neville Southall, Dave Watson, Barry Horn. I talked about this. They were men that I wanted to be because I felt they were real men, rounded, good professionals, but also <laughs> really savvy at, Wait a minute, Neville Southall. Yeah, really savvy. And, and just had understood the world a lot more than I ever did. So I was always kind of in tune or seemed to be more in tune or keener to, to watch and listen that type of character than maybe the more flamboyant ones who, who, or people who sewed labels on the outside of their suits. So how old were you when you first um, cleaned yourself with a brush while sitting on a crossbar? Um, that I have I probably, that's again, a bad example that I didn't follow. <laughs> you see, I wonder if the players that make it then are the ones who can who can learn those lessons who can correctly identify the the role models that they want to follow rather than 
and to an extent that that will be down to their character but i wonder if it's also to an extent down to the circumstances in which they're placed so if you think about someone like mario balotelli who in one sense is i think is quite a mature character i think he like a lot of players his his earning power is directly related to his family's financial security he will support people beyond just himself and i think that's something that we should at least touch on that players rapidly become the leaders of the household at least in a financial sense so you look at even even Lionel messi from about the age of 14 messi has been financially responsible for his his parents and his brothers and that's an incredible but now you look at him and he's earning 20 million quid a year and you think yeah it's fine great i bet, I bet that's easy he'll get an accountant to do it for him but imagine being a 14 15 year old you've been moved from argentina to spain you're I think his dad went with him at one point, his mum went with him at one point, and one of his brothers lived with him. Your whole family's been uprooted just for you. And you're told, look, you have to, you have to make this work because otherwise we're completely banjaxed and we have to go back to Argentina with our tails between our legs. That's an incredible amount of pressure for, for young people to be put upon. And Chinch, and this isn't meant in any way disparagingly, Chinch came from a, a, a good, solid, relatively affluent home. Not, not posh, but you, know, you came from a, a stable background. Yeah, yeah. A lot of a lot of players don't. So you know, a lot of players will 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 see that money and think, right? Well, I've got to maximise this because I've I've got to make sure that my family's okay, not just for this generation but the next generation. Because if you've seen poverty, if you've grown up in poverty, you'll you'll be really conscious of not wanting your kids to have to experience it or your kids' kids to have to have to experience it. But if you look at someone like Balotelli, partly I wonder if he he maybe doesn't have the personality to cope with the pressure in the way that he needed to, to make the most of his talent. And that's fine. You, you, that happens to a lot of people. Most of us couldn't cope with it. It's not a, a value ju- judgment on him. There's also a lot of extraneous factors in Balotelli's background that made it p- particularly difficult for him to have to deal with that sort of pressure. But you also wonder, was he not necessarily exposed to the right sorts of role models at the right times to help him come through and that may not be that the players weren't there at Inter or at Milan or at Manchester City it might be that the players who were there were not people who could identify with him or who he could identify with which meant he never got that lesson and is there also something in the the mindset of those individuals in terms of taking on that burden of responsibility that you've just described Rory because I suppose it was true also with Marcus Rashford that football offered him an opportunity for a better life for him and his family, if he was able to make it succeed. And uh, so the, the, the players who do go on to have great careers and are able to, to make a difference, both in terms of their skills as a footballer, but also as, as Rashford is demonstrating with his social conscience, is that they have been able to, to take on that burden, to, to run with it, to accept the, the responsibility that has been placed upon them, and and those that fall by the wayside isn't necessarily because they don't have the talent, but that that burden becomes too much for them to bear because there's an awful lot. You know, we've talked about Ravel Morrison in the past. We could talk about Michael Johnson, who now runs a, a bar very, you know, who had great things were expected of him at Manchester City. He now runs a bar, a very nice bar close to, in fact, almost equidistant between Hughes and my house. So it's a perfect place to meet up. But there, is, there are plenty, not just locally, but across the globe of players who, who weren't able to turn their talent into a successful career. And I wonder whether that mentality is a, is a contributing factor to that. It, it's a contributing factor, certainly. And it helps to understand the person a little bit more than perhaps they are painted with the broad strokes 
that they are. Um, we started this conversation about Wayne Rooney, the, the broad strokes about Wayne Rooney were, were very clear at the time. It helps to humanize, humanize him a little bit. The Raheem Sterling, with all the press coverage that um, happened earlier in his career, what he's had to go through in the way that he's articulated himself has helped to humanize him. In the Asif Kapadia documentary about Diego Maradona, not Asif Qureshi, Chinch the roly-poly lacrosse goalkeeper, <laughs> Asif Kapadia, the documentary filmmaker. He wasn't filmmaker. roly-poly, he was just big boned. <laughs> big boned and wedged in the goal, uh, in the goal mouth. But um, one, of the, one of the parts of that documentary, well, it's, it's all, it's all a, a process to try and humanize Diego Maradona, to try and understand him a little bit more through that, that period. But one of, the, one of the things that he says is that he, he wanted to, basically play a game in Argentina's league that would be enough for him to feel like he had achieved something in terms of the sporting aspect of his life in terms of the personal family aspect of his life all he wanted to do the only thing that he really saw as his kind of priority his goal was to be able to buy his family a house and it helps to just put into context what you're saying Rory about Lionel Messi as well these these are characters who are painted with such broad strokes and yet they are like all of us nuanced uh, characters with all sorts of, for example, for, for Diego Maradona's part, clear demons that, that troubled him throughout the rest of his career and probably still to a certain extent uh, to this day. But that, that all of this serves to paint a much, much more complicated and nuanced picture of a footballer who are too often and too lazily painted as somebody, as Rory said, as detached from real life, spoilt, kid, kid-like, immature. And that really only is accurate of Andy Hinchcliffe. But I think the other thing is that there's that we make that, that has occurred to me as we've been talking, because as you know, you I find you all deeply thought provoking. Uh, is maybe deeply provoking, maybe definitely provoking. But may, maybe what we mean by maturity is much more fluid than than we think. Because why is being able to work a dishwasher a sign of maturity? any more than being able to speak Latin is a sign of maturity. It's an acquired skill. Maturity I can't even open a pitta, can I? Exactly. <laughs> Look at dishwasher. That's a washing machine, but I can't, really... I can't open a pitta. That's why I 50, said you were but... a perfect example of, of, of the, the broad stroke <laughs> painted footballer that we spoke about. Chinch needs to be supervised with an espresso machine. <laughs> Nearly 50, and that, he, that he regards a pitta as a sort of technical challenge that is beyond him. <laughs> Nearly 50. I love you, Rory. I really do. Are you not? Are you not nearly fifty? He's fifty-one. Oh, are you fifty-one? 50. That is point. Yeah, that's nearly. He had 50. an extravagant fiftieth birthday pod, Rory, well, of which you played a major just, part. I was just going to say, with, with, with the kind of the lazy view, maybe footballs doing interviews like Rory did with Marcus Rashford away from the game, talking about and you, if players can relax and talk about themselves and their interests, you get a very different yeah. sense of a player than you do on a match day because they're, they are, I think anybody, I, that's why I never did any, any interviews when I played, you were scared to death of making a fool of yourself. So you just come out with the same old lines that all the other players come out with and you can come across as, oh, he's just another player earning stupid amounts of money. But when you get these opportunities and that's why I think players, it's, I'm such a hypocrite because I didn't do this when I played, but for players to actually talk and do interviews away from the game when they're more relaxed to realize that people aren't out to get them you get a much better idea of the person behind the football and that's what we've got during, during this time when we, we we've had um, we've had no football a lot more interviews that we've done with coaches and players in their own homes through zoom and it's been brilliant because you actually they you can see that they're more relaxed they're talking more openly you're not trying to stitch them up. You're just trying to get a little bit more about them as people and how they view the game and it, it's been really really to, to me, I've, I found it really helpful. In, in, it's not surprised me at all because I know that those people are in there. But on a match day, it's so 
weird and people behave like a coach or like a player and I can understand why they do but interviews like Rory has done we need to do more of to kind of get to the core of what these people are all about. You're right Chinch it is it is a two-way street you've got to have the respect coming from the journalist to be able to ask questions which treat the footballer like not to sound too preachy sorry like like a human being and not like the monotone footballer that often they are painted as and then to not also be a monotone version of a journalist asking really, really boring questions. So that there is a responsibility upon us. And, and, and I don't know if Rory agrees, but having an opportunity uh, to speak to a footballer like that, and back to the Wayne Rooney thing, the time that he really noticed it with, with Wayne Rooney, I think there was a press availability. It was before one of the, one of the FA Cup finals, probably the 2007 FA Cup final. Um, and Steve, you, I think you're probably part of it. We interviewed him in the, the changing room of the training ground. And it was obviously a non-match day. He wasn't in his training gear. He was wearing his scruffs. He was behaving in a normal way. And we got an opportunity to speak to him in a normal way. And those are the occasions where we feel, and probably Rory, you agree, that it should be more often employed by a club, by a representative, by a player. And us, obviously, we enjoy that more because we get to speak to them in a way that um, removes all the, all the paraphernalia that makes it a dull, monotone, monochrome interview. Yeah, and I think the, the other thing is that the context is different, which makes them more comfortable because yeah, after, as Chinch says, after a game, you're, you're, being, you're trying to come off a pitch, you're still sweating. You're, you're not really processed internally, I think, what you're, what's just happened. And you're then met with this barrage of questions. And that's not a criticism of the reporters because that's the job they have to do. Um, there's a limit to what you can say in that situation about anything, really. You kind of, I mean, there's been a big thing the last few days about Erling Haaland's kind of mix zone technique, his flash interview technique. I've, I've interviewed Haaland and he's, you have to be quite on it with Haaland because if you ask a stupid question, he will not give you an answer. He doesn't want to answer stupid questions. And there's an element of he's 19, he's playing up to it a little bit. He's trying to prove, he's trying to assert himself and that's fine. And it might well calm down with age a little bit that he realizes, look, it's all part of a thing and everyone's just doing a job and it's a bit annoying and you, you are jumping through a hoop, but it can't really be avoided. Um, but once you get him talking, he's a really good talker. He's a really bright, he's a really bright kid. He's really interesting. He's really engaged. He, he did that thing that, that certainly two of you will know is incredibly rare when you meet a footballer and he asked me questions. Footballers very rarely ask you a question. Erling Haaland in conversation will ask you a question and that did he ask you Rory oh we were, well it was afterwards we talked we talked about Leeds and um and obviously he was born here um and obviously I'm from Leeds so like to like to compare notes and we talked about kind of what he liked about about Yorkshire and his answer of there's not much to do and he that quite appeals to him I felt was not entirely um in keeping with the welcome to Yorkshire slogans that I was filled with <laughs> as a child <laughs> Um, but the um, welcome to Yorkshire, but only if you're originally from Yorkshire. The exactly, which is what it should probably should probably be the slogan. But no, we, he, and he sort of asked about kind of about where I grew up and about what I thought about Leeds this season, and this was before lockdown, and about what why why Yorkshire was people from Yorkshire were kind of so proud of being from Yorkshire, and he he was engaged with that. That was all off the record, but. He was engaged with that subject. He was he was interested in it. We talked we talked about England, about kind of the various places he grew up and stuff, and and being a, a kid of a famous player, which is what the interview was about. And he was engaged with it. And it, there's an element of he's acting, he's playing up a little bit in the in those flash interviews, but also 
that we, we, we as a public and certainly we as a media need to remember that we shouldn't judge the people on those bits of the performance that we see in front of the cameras, those bits of, of interviews, those, those snippets of interviews, because they're not a fair reflection of who a person is. So yeah, most footballers do appear quite monosyllabic if the only time you encounter a footballer being speaking is in a brief two minute interview after a game or in a mix zone or just before a match or something that's not or in, even in, to be honest even in a press conference it's it's very hard for your personality to shine through because it's a i i occasionally am interviewed by people generally sort of students or whatever who want to pick my brains for reasons that remain entirely unclear to me and it's really nerve-wracking it's a horrible experience because you've got you, you want to be pithy and funny and and sparkling and inspiring but you're also terrified you're going to say something stupid so we shouldn't we shouldn't take those snapshots as proof of the personality we should remember that that is just that's an that's an alien situation for a player to be in it's uncomfortable and unnerving and they probably are not at their best there's a there's another layer there as well being the the son of a famous player Again, we've talked about the responsibilities, the pressures on young players going into adjustment. But being the say Paolo Maldini's son, Daniele, how how do you? It must again the psychology. Well, Paolo knew from Cesare, and Cesare yeah. can tell Paolo, and Paolo can tell Daniele. No, but for us, for us again, being being Daniele, um, Chinch. that must must be very tricky. Stop giving away my my forthcoming content ideas. <laughs> you didn't need to say that, Rory. Why, why <laughs> do you think... stated over my brilliant idea. Why do you think I interviewed Erling Haaland? Well, as soon as you said that, it, 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 I never read any of the stuff that you write, because why, <laughs> why would I when there's, there's Lee Child out there or Andrew Child? Um, but that that is interesting to me. That interests me, the psychology of sons of great players or grandsons of great players. Well, give me a couple of weeks, Chinch, and have I got a treat for you. <laughs> He's, fine, he is fine, he's finally going to click on one of your articles. No, 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 no. Can you, can you read it and send it to me audio? As a voice so note. I can hear you. Yes, could you, I'd, I'd like to hear your silky smooth voice reading out what you've written and then you probably realise how bad it is. What a lovely thought for everybody. And just to finish on this point before we move on to a soccer story, which is essentially Andy doing exactly what he's just asked Rory to do, um, <laughs> is, is to say that particularly at the time of coronavirus, when, when this is an unprecedented challenge facing all of football, but it took a long time for the players to find their voice. But once the players did find their voice and people like Jordan Henderson has always been at the forefront of this, he's, he's not exactly 45 years old. Um, they, they have been able to showcase another facet of their personality which might be often hidden not just the generosity or the sense of of kind of having to of, of feeling the need to donate to the nhs or whatever but the, the willingness to, to stand and fight their corner is incredibly mature and i think that that is, is kind of pr the proof of the pudding of what we've been talking about maybe there's a new sort of basis for measurement or judging somebody's age you know this thing about you know measuring something in dog years Maybe in between human years and dog years, we could measure things in footballer years. Hmm. Well, in that case, Chinch is 51 and also 78. Um, it's time for <laughs> Nevermind Jack and Ori, What a Soccer Story. This is Andy Hitchcock tells the tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. We have talked about the, or I have talked about the 1995 Cup Final quite a lot. Do, do you, you guys, there must be a few soccer stories that I've told about that game. Yeah, it's something that kind of, Rings a bell with you, you Not three, really, yes? No. no. No, anyway, but it, it is, of course, known as the Hinchcliffe final um, because of, I think I had the fewest number of touches in a cup final ever, but still had a huge influence by blocking the forward runs of Roy Keane. Um, but it's actually, 
I remember at the time, or, or soon afterwards, or maybe over the last, next couple of years, is that Sir Alex Ferguson and, and certain United players have talked about that cup final being definitive in, in the success, or important in the success that they had pretty soon after. Because losing to, to Everton is bad enough. Losing to Everton in a cup final is, is, is really bad. And it was something that clearly they never wanted to go through again. And Alex Ferguson, after the game, from what I've heard, did say this to the players, that this is, this is an experience we, we, we cannot have again. We should be beating teams like that. And remember how this feels because we want to turn this around completely and, and be a lot better. And I've always known that that was the case. But then I thought, well, what actually happened? I know United won a lot of things, but what actually happened with the aftermath of losing that 95 Cup final to me? What actually happened to United in terms of their trophy? In the next five years, United won four Premier League titles, two FA Cups and the Champions League. So it's pretty clear that I personally caused that to happen by annoying United and Sir Alex so much that they went on a basically a, a winning spree. They drove around the country firing footballs into nets in grounds all over the country and winning competition after competition. That was, that's on my shoulders, people. So that tiny little FA Cup winner's medal that I have counterbalanced with the huge success and trophy haul that United then had off the back of that and the fact that Everton won absolutely zip for 25 years. I, I, do, I, I do finally, after 25 years, have to hold my hand up and say, I do admit my responsibility in United's dominance, both domestically and in European football for, for many, many years. So my bad. The funny thing is, is that uh, Everton won a trophy prior to that Manchester United hall because I thought you said that the Charity Shield was indeed a major, significant, life-changing, altering trophy. It, it altered my life in so many ways. I've got a door that would just swing open, if not for the Charity Shield plaque that I have wedged underneath. That door would be swinging and hitting Primrose in the face. It doesn't do that because of my Charity Shield. Was that plaque. an Everton Blackburn Charity Shield? Oh, what a game. What a load of rubbish. <laughs> uh, but Vinny Samway, I must have talked about this again. It was boiling hot. It was too hot to play football. It was ludicrous. The game should have been called off because it was too hot and just... Just cut the trophy in half. Uh, but Vinny Samway's managed to lob whoever was in net for Blackburn. Tim we, we, did the, we did the double, the most famous double of <laughs> FA Cup and the Charity Shield. Uh, keep your correspondence coming into setpiecemenu at gmail.com. And don't forget, you have until Saturday at midnight BST. That is end of Friday, end of Friday, to apply for a place at our SPM Live. It's not live show. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you, Stephen, Andy, and Rory, to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Where is your Cup Winners Medal, Chinch? Um, doo -doo. I think it's in the loft. I think it's in the loft. My two England caps. I think we've seen those on the yeah. the torso, not on my torso, on on not someone else's torso either, on a on a on a statuette in the dining room. But the FA Cup and charity, I'm sure they're in a box of paraphernalia, not drug paraphernalia, paraphernalia in the loft, along with my way. SO along with my SO coin collection. I love the idea that if Chinch hadn't marked Roy Keane comprehensively out of the game and United had won that cup final, that they'd have just banged it on the head at that point. Fergie, Keane, they'd have said, that's enough. They'd have come complacent, my, Steve, and they wouldn't have had the success that they had. My thirst for success has been satisfied by yeah. beating Everton in the 1995 cup final. Is, is the big question there not, what the hell was Fergie doing playing Roy Keane wide right? 
They had loads of injuries, no, he... didn't they, United? That's the only reason Everton won. I'm sure United he played, because blue... I, I played on the left-hand side. I say played. I was on the left-hand side of midfield ahead of Gary Ablett, who played left-back. So I didn't even play... He didn't play on the right. I'm sure he played kind of right. But I think there's a reason for that, whether he started there. But I'm sure that's where he played. And I don't know why he played there. I think he started there and on the right-hand side of midfield. But there was a substitution quite early on, which took him away from the right-hand side, I'm assuming. Away from me. Because of where you were, yeah. That was yeah, the whole tactical the, shift the in the second half. The influence I was exerting on him. Yeah, I was, I was like a, a footballing Jupiter on Roy Keane's earth. He had, there was too much gravity. He simply couldn't break away. You were dragging him down like an anchor, Chinch. That is not only Chinch. Chinch, I wasn't dragging him down. I was keeping him in my, in an orbit, a footballing orbit of which he could have no effect. Chinch, that is not only a a startlingly bad piece of footballing analysis. It's also a fundamental misunderstanding of the solar system. No, no, no. The the, the sun clearly has the, 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 I was watching programs, you know, What's his name? Brian Cox. Are you arguing with, with Coxie? He's talked about how the other planets affect other planets as well as the sun. It's not just the sun that affects these planets. That's why they wobble. Chinch I've been doing is, a lot of listening over the lockdown. Chinch the is emperors, was... the planets. So yeah, Jupiter is the behemoth of the, of the solar system. And it has an effect on all the planets around it. Clearly not as big as the sun, but it has a big effect on it, as I did on Roy Keane. Well, I know, I know of at least one astrophysicist who listens to this podcast so i i might ask ken to just double check your work in there just, just ask him about jupiter and its effect on the on the known universe and i'm sure he will agree with 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 coxie and chinch ask ken rory whether chinch was able to carry so much timber into an fa cup final that he had his own gravitational pull <laughs> yeah that was it and that's why i put on the extras two stones so roy Keane could not escape my gravitational pull